Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. We are very thankful, as always, for your presence and for this opportunity. And it is just that. It is a privilege and opportunity to assemble together and to praise and glorify our God, fellowship one with another, gain and give encouragement. And we are very thankful for that time that we have together. If you have your Bibles, we're in Philippians chapter 4. We're returning again to Paul's perspective. And we are talking this evening about a peaceful life. Before we enter the sermon this evening, let me encourage you to both anticipate and get the things that Scripture says we are to have. Christianity is a life of joy. If you don't have joy and you are a Christian, something is, is off there. Something's missing. You should have joy in being a Christian. Christianity is a life of peace. If you do not have peace, then something is amiss, and you ought to have peace as a result of being a Christian. And so I want to encourage you and exhort you that while I know it, let me just say it. These are not formalities. We don't just assemble together on Sunday at 5 because we assemble together on Sunday at 5. We assemble, yes, to worship the Lord our God, and to encourage one another, but with the expectation that we will have and become what Scripture says we are to be and to have and become. And so let me encourage you as we read these words from God and as we hear what the Apostle Paul says that you and I take these things into our lives and actually be in the process of becoming or getting or gaining or growing into these areas that the Scripture enjoins upon us a peaceful life. The thoughts of chapter 4 are connected to the thoughts of chapter 3. I know, profound, but that's what I do. I say profound things like that all the time. <laughs> you can see that in chapter 4 in verse number 1 by the word, therefore. It's kind of a concluding thought, but it's connecting the things that Paul has been talking about. What he has been talking about since we've been uh, off of our study for a little while, just by way of reminder, notice the end of chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, to give us a context of what he's been talking about. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. Therefore, as he moves into this next section, he begins to talk about themes he's already addressed. In fact, three of them have been expressed in the book and will be expressed in these first three verses. Those themes are unity, faithfulness, and the way one thinks, or the mind. Paul will address those as he's continued to do. These thoughts need to be held in view of one going to heaven. That's Paul's perspective. A peaceful life is a life rooted in Jesus. Our lives in the New Testament are so frequently connected to Jesus and his life, to Jesus and his person, to Jesus and his power, to Jesus and his resurrection. We are what we are because of Jesus. And so whatever the exhortation, inevitably it will find its way back 
to Jesus. And the same thing is true here. As we open up chapter 4 and begin to read, the first thing that stands out is Paul's closeness and love of the brethren. That's not one of the exhortations. That's just noted as you read the first part of chapter 4 and verse number 1. Therefore, he refers to them as my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren, my joy and crown. It's just noteworthy the relationship that the apostles had with the saints to whom they wrote and with whom they labored and how often they addressed their love for them, how frequently they talked about it and they shared it. They, they were very open about how much they loved the brethren. Sometimes we, we may feel a certain amount of vulnerability if I do that. If I told you I love you, maybe it makes me exposed as being somehow needy or dependent or something like that, and I wouldn't want anybody to think I'm one of these emotional types. Doesn't seem to be the case at all with the apostles. They just don't mind saying it, and it's noteworthy. Paul says back in chapter 1 and verse number 3, he says of them, I thank my God in all my remembrance, King James, upon every remembrance of you. I thank God every time I remember you. In chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I will rejoice and share my joy with you all. Chapter 3 and verse 1, finally, my brethren, Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. As it's, to me, it's no trouble at all. It's a safeguard for you. And then you hear here in chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, brethren are the children of the Lord, and the Scripture enjoins upon us to love the brethren. In fact, it is of such a nature that the Scripture will place it as a prerequisite to go into heaven. That you and I cannot go to heaven if we don't love the brethren. You can read words like that or to that effect in 1 John 3, verses 11 to 15. Not as Cain, he says, we ought to love one another. Not as Cain, who, who slew his brother. And why did he kill him? Because his own deeds were evil. But in chapter 4, John actually says in chapter 4, verse 20 and 21 of his epistle, that if we, we try to love God, whom we have not seen, and we don't love our brethren, who we have seen, John says you can't do it. You cannot love God if you don't love the brethren. It is of such importance that we love one another. From there, we move into these three exhortations of Paul with regards to a peaceful life. And the first exhortation is in the second part of verse number one, and that is this. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, to whom I long to see my joy and crown, exhortation number one, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved a life that's rooted in Jesus, that's what makes for a life of peace. It's been the exhortation throughout the book. As I said, our lives are so often connected to Jesus. Look at chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul says there, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
In chapter 2, in verse number 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast, standing firm, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain. Stand firm. He would say of himself, I forget those things that are behind, but I press forward. I'm standing firm. I'm pressing forward. Here is at least one thing to take from that, and that is this. Personal faithfulness is probably the greatest charge to every Christian. If you want to go to heaven, make sure you go to heaven. It really is nobody else who could prevent you or fix it so that you go. This stand firm idea, while it is written to a congregation of God's people, there is a personal component to that. Every individual must stand firm. That's how it's couched throughout the New Testament. We read passages like Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful unto death, while he's writing to the church. That's to every individual that makes up the church. Add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge. Who's to do that? Notice your faith. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who's to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ if not you? Study 2 Timothy 2.15 or give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, handling a right or rightly dividing the word of truth. This idea of standing firm, while written to the Philippian church, is to every member within that church. You stand firm in the Lord. And if one does that, well, like the Apostle Paul, you could have peace even in prison. You could have peace even in persecution. You could have peace in poverty or, as he will say later, prosperity. I've learned to be okay in either. Your greatest weapon in your life is your personal faith in God. You stand firm in the Lord. And when you do that, no matter what happens in life, you can be at peace. And the reason is really simple. It is because Christ is with you in every situation. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul will simply sum it up as he, Christ, is our peace. Paul is in a Philippian jail in peace because Christ is with him in there. What's he doing? I'm standing firm in the Lord. The second exhortation is found in verse number two. And that is, he says, I urge Eodia and I urge Synthache to live in harmony in the Lord. Here is another theme that is consistently taught both in old the Old Covenant and the New, and that is unity among God's people. To live in harmony in the Lord. In Psalm 133 and verse number one, unity is described in this way. Behold how good and how pleasant it is 
when brothers dwell in unity. Unity among God's people brings peace among God's people. In fact, it could be said, and I think rightly so, that unity is the work of the entire Godhead. Unity is the plea for God, for his people. Chapter 1, verse 27, we just read it. That you would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 1 and verse number 2, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if therefore there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, fulfill my joy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind and of the same judgment. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 10, there is to be no schism, no division in the body. Unity is the plea for God's people. But secondly, it's noteworthy to note that unity is the prayer of our Lord. I don't know how important, and if you can say one way or the other something is more important than the other, it does just seem noteworthy that our Lord is on the eve of his passion. And our Lord is praying to his Father. And what's on the Lord's mind is the unity of his believers. In John chapter 17, our Lord is not teaching men to pray as he is in Matthew 6. He's actually praying. If you and I want to call something the Lord's prayer, John 17 would be a much better moniker for that than Matthew 6. He's actually praying. And that prayer breaks down into three parts. And if you were to read through that prayer, you will find these sentiments expressed by the Lord. The first several verses, he prays for himself. He says to his father, he would like the glory that he had before the foundation of the world to be restored. He had finished his work. He had done the will of the father. But as you transition from about verse 5 onward, he stops praying for himself, and he turns his attention to immediately to his apostles. And he talks about how God had given them to him and how he had kept them and how he had given them God's word and how they had believed that God sent him and how he was praying for them. And throughout that prayer, you will find this expression that they would all be one. He says that to his apostles. He's praying to God for the apostles, and his prayer is that they will be one. As he gets toward the end of that prayer, down in about the early 20s, maybe 21, 22, he says, neither do I pray for these, the apostles, alone, but for all of them who will believe on me through their word, which is us in every subsequent generation after the apostles. We believe on Jesus because of their word. And it's the same sentiment expressed. For those who would believe, because of the words of the apostles, Jesus said, I pray that they would all be one. In fact, he takes it a step further, and he says, even as we are one, the Father and the Christ are one in every way. And Jesus says, I'm praying that they will be one just like us. He adds, with regards to that prayer, he says, so that the world will know that you sent me. One of the most destructive parts of denominational division is that it gives the world opportunity to reject the Christ. Jesus' prayer is that everyone who would believe would be one. Unity was on the Lord's mind 
shortly before his passion. It is the Father's plea and will and desire. It is the Lord's prayer, and it is unity, the work or the result of the Spirit's work. When you read Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes these words in verse number 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The truth is, I, you, we have an obligation personally to do all that we can to maintain the unity the Spirit brought. I must make sure that I am not the cause. I am not the reason that there is no longer unity among God's people. Now, we could pivot and go down a path and distinguish why unity and union are not the same and make sure that we understand that we can't just fabricate unity and make it up just to go along and get along. I mean, I trust you understand that, but I guess I have to say it, so I did. That unity revolves around and comes from the Word of God. Again, if you read John chapter 17, you will hear Jesus say frequently, I've given them your Word. In John 17, 17, in the midst of that prayer, he says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. The unity was brought by the Spirit who revealed the truth. That creates the unity. Now then, we must maintain that unity. How? Well, again, listen to some of the words that are in Ephesians 4, and then note some of the words in Philippians 2. Go back there to Ephesians 4. Notice within those three verses there that we read where he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. Notice how with all lowliness and meekness. Why sometimes is unity destroyed? There is no lowliness and there's no meekness. When pride and people's issues and their agendas and their ideas and desires supersede their lowliness, their willingness to humble themselves, their willingness to, as Paul says here, with all meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another, putting up with each other, standing in and enduring with each other. No, we don't always like everything that everybody's. No, we don't. But there's a difference between we can't go along with you because of doctrinal matters and we can't go along with you because it's my way or the highway. There's a difference between those two things. If you look at Philippians 2, again, as Paul says that, he talks about how, verse number 3, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. We had a preacher, a teacher in our class one time. He said, if you want to know what a preacher is struggling with or working on or thinking about, just listen to what he preaches. And this 
vocation is difficult at best to keep the man behind the preaching somehow hidden like you don't know. No, it comes out of you. And I can tell you what I've been working on in my own mind. And the best way I can describe it is I'm trying desperately not to be offensive. Now, offensive could be also offensive, I understand that, but I'm trying to be or not be offensive. What do I mean by that? Having a sports background, or at least a love of sports when I was very young, and we played a lot of basketball, there's always two sides of the course, and you try to be good at both sides. You want to be good on the offensive side, you want to be good on the defensive side. On the offensive side, you're attacking, you're moving forward, you're trying to score a basket. That idea... What Paul says here and what the Scriptures teach over and over again is ultimately, don't you be the reason. Don't let a word come out of your mouth that's harmful. No, you can't control what other people say. You can't stop what other people do, but you can control what you say back. And if you attack back, then you become offensive. Now you've gone from walking with the Lord to you actually being the thrower of the stone. I'm trying not to throw stones. I'm trying to control myself. Trying to make sure that what comes out of my mouth is governed by God and by Jesus, and I don't just let it go because you did something to me. It seems to me that that is a pretty heavy disposition or one desired over the New Testament. Again, read these words. Verse number three says, do nothing. Who? You. Me. Do what? Nothing. How? Out of selfishness or empty conceit. Don't be offensive. Don't be the one that said the mean word. Don't be the one that destroyed the unity. Don't be the one that gossiped and backbite. Don't you be the one. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. Quite the opposite, though. With all humility of mind, regard others better than yourselves. How do we maintain this unity? Well, every member of the Godhead wants it. But again, it boils down to you and to me. Standing firm and standing in unity go hand in hand. There was a threat to unity in the first century. And Paul talked about it. It was these false teachers. Even in Philippi, they had made some headway. Notice chapter 3 and verse number 1. Paul says there, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing against you. There's no trouble to me and a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. What's happening? Well, the unity is at stake. How are we going to maintain it? We're going to stand firm in the Lord. How? Together. And we're going to, we're going to live in harmony. And if we do that, the false teachers will then have no inroads. It brings us to the third exhortation, and that is in verse number 3. Indeed, he says, true companion, I urge, uh, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The third exhortation is help the faithful. Help the cause. Help 
these individuals along. Someone, I think, again, one of our instructors many years ago, I think it was J.A. McNutt, I'm not for sure, but I believe that's who said it. He said, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. It is consistently true that no man is an island, and every man needs help. And the church is designed to help one another. Even our Lord received help. In Luke chapter 8, sometimes when you're reading through the Bible, you come across these things and they just jump off the page and astound you. I was rather surprised many years ago when I read this passage. It begins with these words, Luke 8 and verse number 1. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons has gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him out of their means. They helped the Lord. They helped the cause. Jesus didn't just receive help. Jesus gave help, and that's really the kind of the way it works. We help people. They help people. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Throughout this epistle, it's one of the things that Paul has continually talked about, how much they have helped him and he, them, and others have participated. Notice back in chapter 1, verse number 4 and verse number 5, Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God upon all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In chapter 4, in verse number 15, he will say concerning this congregation, you yourselves also know, you Philippians know, you brethren know that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me, no church helped me, no church participated in the matter of giving and receiving, but you. They helped him. Back in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, Paul says, Timothy has helped him. And he is coming to help them. In fact, of Timothy, he says, I have no man so like-minded as myself. He will naturally care for your well-being, your estate. Epaphroditus is mentioned by name, chapter 2, verses 24 through 30. Their minister who brought their gift to Paul and was sick, nigh unto death, not counting or concerned for his own life, in helping the ministry. Now, he says, Yodia and Syntyche, they also are helping. And in verse number three, help these women who are helping him. Those who labor for the Lord should be helped by those who receive the benefits of that which they provide. That's just a biblical teaching, again, throughout the New Testament. Paul is in prison, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Epaphroditus almost died, chapter 2 and verse 27. These women had shared in Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel with Clement and the rest of our fellow workers. Sometimes when we talk about evangelism, it almost seems as if we are suggesting, and I don't know that we mean this in exactly the way it sounds, but it's often at least processed as 
unless you're sitting across the table with the Bible open and conducting the study, you're not evangelizing. That's just not true. There's so much help involved in making that happen. There's so many things you can do to help facilitate that. There are so many other things and other ways and other efforts. And the truth of the matter is, while I don't want to offer anybody an excuse by simply saying, well, I'm never going to grow to the point where I could conduct the study because Eric said I didn't have to. I didn't say that. It's not what I said. The Bible describes the church as a body, however. Not all members have the same function. But I do know this. There is no one within the body who can do nothing to help the body. There is work that we all can do. And sometimes it might be that you're like Nathaniel. He first went and found his brother. And so go find somebody, help somebody, connect somebody, do something. Paul says, help these women. That's the third exhortation. It's also noteworthy that he says, whose names are in the book of life. People who were written in God's book. It's fitting that this section is connected to the resurrection and heaven because that's the only way to get there is to have one's name written in the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. If you want to test your faithfulness, just keep asking yourself, who am I helping and what am I doing for the cause of Christ? What am I doing? We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Saints help. That's just what we do. Selflessness and service are just integral parts to being Christian. Three exhortations Paul gives for a peaceful life. Stand firm in the Lord. You do that. Brother or sister, if you want to go to heaven, just keep standing firm in the Lord and you will get there. Live in harmony in the Lord. Make sure that you strive, endeavor, put forth the effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I do not want to be the reason that God's church no longer has peace. I do not want to be the fly in the ointment. I don't want to be the problem. Now, who's going to control that? I'm the only one who can. And help those who labor for the Lord. What an opportunity and privilege we have to take our goods and help support the work of the Lord. To be fellow laborers with those whose names are written in the book of life. A peaceful life. It's a life rooted in Christ. I pray that you have one. If you're not a Christian tonight, become one. Become a Christian. There simply is no better life that one could live and no greater decision one could make than to give his life to Jesus. And Jesus invites us all to do just that. Believe that he's the son of God. Change your heart, change your mind. Bible calls it repentance. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. And God, through Jesus, will wash away all of your sins. He'll make you a new creation and we can go forward growing in his grace and living the life that brings him glory.
If you are his child and you've lived in a way that's not pleasing to your heavenly father, then you know that. And I hope that you also know that our father will welcome you home. You need only come. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.